0: Welcome back. Uh, We've been dealing with uh, the opioid crisis for quite some time now, both the overdose crisis and the addiction crisis, which may run parallel, may overlap, but but I think are separate and distinct things. There are not quick and easy answers to all of this. So I don't know to what extent we should fault the government for whatever the, the numbers happen to be. But I think part of the problem here in Alberta is that the government has very specifically claimed that they're addressing this, that their approach is working, that their approach is saving lives. And for a while, we were just kind of expected to take their word for it. Now, unfortunately, a lot of that, that talk you know, went through an election campaign. And we didn't have the underlying numbers to judge the veracity of the government's claims. We do now. And it's pretty clear that Alberta's approach is not saving lives. So we've got the uh, opioid-related death numbers for February, March, and April of this year that the government's been sitting on for months. And the numbers have been going up. 151 in February, 168 in March, and 179 in April. That's the highest count since we started keeping track of all of this. So the numbers are really troubling, and they obviously undermine and undercut the government's argument that their strategy or their approach is working. So why isn't it working? Why are these numbers trending in the wrong direction? Joining us for some further thoughts and analysis on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Benjamin Perrin, a law professor at University of British Columbia, author of the book Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis, also author of the forthcoming book, Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. That will be out in October. Much more at BenjaminPerrin.ca. Professor Perrin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. These numbers illustrate just, you know, how we're in the midst of this crisis, what a challenge it is. But I think, on the other hand, you know, we've had an Alberta government uh, that for the past several months has been, uh, you know, almost boasting or, or patting itself on the back that, that they are somehow leaders in addressing this crisis. So we've got that element, too. But let me just get your initial reaction to, to what these
1: numbers are telling us. Well, it's absolutely tragic, uh, senseless, and unfortunately, entirely predictable. Uh, Alberta just posted the deadliest month on record uh, from people who've died in the province from unregulated drug deaths, and that's April of 2023. And, um, you know, unfortunately, as you alluded to, it's actually been over almost over a year now that the so-called Alberta model has been touted, not only in the province, but by conservatives uh, across the country. Uh, and even you know, saying we should do this model internationally. So, what what they basically did is after you know, COVID was winding down, the drug supply is stabilizing, and people are um, beginning to you know uh, see the results from that. There was a there was a drop in in deaths. What what happened though is the UCP government claimed that the reason for that was its so called treatment model, which again, for you know, people be very familiar with. They've uh, strenuously oppose things like uh, supervised consumption sites and safer supply, things that have been shown to, to save lives. Instead, instead we're going to put our all our eggs in the treatment basket, as it were. People need to get, quote unquote, drug free is what we've been hearing uh, from federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, and also even you know just today, UCP again saying that's the goal is to get people to stop using drugs. What, what activists, advocates, researchers, um, people who use drugs have been warning, is that that was a recipe for disaster and the ucp government had the data and they refused to release it until this week they were withholding months and months of data the last time they released information was in january and did so during a provincial election while they continued to claim knowing full well that it was a lie that their new model was saving lives Right. Ultimately, this
0: is about saving lives. I mean, we have uh, an overdose crisis. We have an addiction crisis. There are different ways of of measuring the extent of those crises or whether we're making progress, et cetera. We look at these specific numbers, the numbers of people who are dying. Is this the most relevant metric or or the the most immediate, certainly, metric when it comes to, to measuring all of this?
1: I mean, how, how could it how could it not be right? I mean, if 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 we're really interested in addressing this issue, the the number of people dying has to be the the principal metric that we're concerned with. Mm-hmm. You know, there are other metrics that are relevant, but this has to, at the end of the day, be is the ultimate test for whether your policies are are working or not. Now, look, you can't. My, I'm not here today to argue about you know causality. The fact is, there's so many factors at play here. What I am here to say is that it was false for the UCP government to claim that its so-called Alberta model was a reason for a drop in deaths and that that meant that it was a model that should be uh, expanded and exported to the exclusion of of life-saving harm reduction measures. That's, that was their claim. That has been shown to be false, and not only false, but um, deceptively so. So the question is, what did you go forward? Um, the UCP government this week, when it released this data quietly... Uh, has pivoted now. Now their, their messaging is all about how we're going to crack down on drug traffickers. Well, interestingly enough, this month, we have a, a landmark peer-reviewed study that's come out confirming that that approach actually is also associated with increased overdose deaths. And that, that study has been widely publicized. So they're basically pivoting from one failed strategy to another failed strategy. And and it's clear what will, what will be helpful and successful because the, the research is clear on this. Providing... People with a safe place to use unregulated drugs helps them save lives. 44,000 people have had their overdoses reversed in Canada over the last several years at supervised consumption sites. The evidence on a safer supply, which is substituting these unregulated toxic drugs for drugs of known content and potency that people are going to take anyway, that's also being shown to save lives. And so it's not an either or. That's a false dichotomy. It's not harm reduction or treatment. We have to do both. And the treatment we offer has to be evidence-based treatment, not just stop using drugs, cold turkey, abstinence, which has been shown actually to also increase the risk of people dying.
0: Right. And, and I mean, are, are we talking about sort of dual crises happening at the same time? Because the, the overdose crisis is not necessarily the same thing as the addiction crisis. There's a lot of overlap, clearly. Um, but when it comes to saving lives, as you say, harm reduction, safe supply, that does that. Those are not meant to address the addiction crisis. And so it would be false, I think, to you know say that somehow they, they missed the
1: mark when it comes to dealing with addiction. So what no they a, did. I gotta I gotta jump in there okay we'll go you ahead. cannot recover you cannot recover from a substance use disorder when you're dead. so right. these are, that was my I, point. I, yeah Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I take your point, but like, this is, this is that it's core. They're, they are related crises, right? So, um, but we have to start by keeping people alive. The other thing is like, let's look at the research. It's not everyone who's dying has a substance use disorder. This is also one of the myths out there. There's a substantial, I shouldn't say substantial, there's a notable number of people in BC, it's around 10% or so of people who are casual or recreational people who are using drugs sometimes for the first time who are dying because of the toxic unregulated drugs. So having a treatment system, is not going to in any way help them, right? Mm. And so that's where things like drug testing, safer supply, and safe places to use can come in, but primarily the first couple. And so you're absolutely right. We need to be looking at all of these things. The problem is the UCB government has not done that. They're, they're, they're blinded by some sort of ideological or, or moral position that drug use is wrong and so people should just stop using. And as, as lovely that, as that would possibly be if that were the case that you could just say just say no, uh, we've known for decades that, that that doesn't work and that there are better ways to support people to, to stop using uh, substances when they are uh, ready to do so. The other thing we yeah. haven't talked about is involuntary treatment, which um, has been a big campaign uh, issue and and legislation uh, introduced on in Alberta, and that also has been uh, widely criticized because it once again it, it increases the risk of people dying, and again the the reason for these things is that. If someone is stopping to use or um, decreasing their use of substances without other supports, that's the key, they are substantially at higher risk of dying. So uh, a British Medical Journal article from years ago found that people who successfully completed a 28-day detox who had opiate use disorder were significantly more likely to overdose and die. So uh, this treatment is literally killing people
0: you mentioned safer supply, and I know there's, there's you know been a, a notion put forward that maybe that's somehow counterproductive in the sense that I, I guess the, the argument is that some of this uh, safer supply that we're providing is ending up in the streets and users are, are just, you know, ending up back on the more dangerous substances. What, what have you made of some of these these more recent arguments against the safer supply approach?
1: Yeah, I think we have to be mindful of in any public health intervention of, of you know, risks and unintended consequences and people who are serious about safer supply programs, you know, discuss that and there's protocols that are in place to address that. One of the, one of the issues is if people are not given drugs that actually do provide a substitute, they're given something that's maybe less potent and isn't actually going to be effective substitute, then diversion is more likely. And so most of the programs that we see that are, that are doing really well are the ones where people are actually uh, paired up with, with a safer version of a drug they were already going to take. And there are places that are doing that. But even in the, the broader prescribed safer supply pilot projects, uh, we see evidence of lower risks of overdose death. We see people using less, uh, street drugs or stopping using them entirely. And so that's that's a really key piece. You know, another interesting part about some of the safer supply debate is there was quite a you know uproar uh in, in some circles around the fact that there was there was allegedly a hydromorphone available on the streets. Well, the, these substances are not Primarily, safe for supply. They're actually prescribed for people for for pain relief and all kinds of other things as well. And they've been part of the drug market for for a long time. Uh, When I hear someone is asking for those substances, that actually tells us that they're aware of the risk of the unregulated drugs, which are uh, the primary cause of overdose deaths. Well over 80% of people who died of of uh, overdose were from unregulated toxic drugs. So if we're not going to provide a safer supply people are going to use anyway, we are basically saying let organized crime provide them with the drugs. And if, you know, Premier Daniel Smith and her party think she can win the war on drugs and do a better job than someone like, I don't know, Richard Nixon, uh, good luck. You're going to waste a lot of money and you're going to cost more lives. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: look, it's pretty clear that that the situation is is not improved in Alberta, despite the claims we've heard to the contrary. Uh, It is a a tremendous challenge to address all of this. Are, Are we seeing improvements elsewhere if it's not the quote unquote Alberta model is there another model out there? Are there jurisdictions we can look to for, you know, perhaps a path to success?
1: Well, people like to talk about Portugal, but, you know, when the Portugal drug experts came here to to Canada, they said, we're not dealing with what you're dealing with. They They did not and have not experienced the same degree of toxicity in their unregulated drug market. So... You know one thing we can learn from portugal is to not criminalize people and treat this as more of a health issue but that's not a model that is importable to to canada the portuguese have even said that so the fact is that across north america um we are seeing uh, individual examples of programs that have been shown to save lives but there's currently no jurisdiction in in north america or i'd even argue in the world that has actually fully scaled up those programs uh, recently i met with uh, one of the physicians in vancouver who was part of um Addressing the HIV/AIDS epidemic, which in in BC the instances of new transmissions are so low, it was no longer it's no longer considered a public health emergency or epidemic. And what he shared with me is that that took around eighty to ninety percent of of people being reached with those public health interventions. We are nowhere near that. Safer supply, for example, only reaches an estimated five percent of people in BC. So you're not going to see population level. Uh, declines in in overdose uh, deaths unless we rapidly scale up safer places to use, safer supply, and evidence based treatment on demand. Once we have those things scaled up, available in in the vast majority of communities, you're not going to see a decline. Now that's subject to one caveat, of course, Rob, which is you will see a decline in overdose deaths eventually through raw attrition. There's sure. a finite number of people who who use uh, substances every month every year there are less of them alive. Now, there are you know, obviously some New users that come on through the course of this, but that is my fear. That has been my fear since I started working on this issue and, and you know, published my book, Overdose in 2020, was that we were either going to reach the end of this, this public health emergency through taking the, the life-saving steps we've been talking about today, or by not taking them, and there just aren't as many people left to die year after year, and it ends by, by raw attrition. Well, you mentioned the and treatment that, that's side. That's the real tragedy.
0: Yeah. And, and I, just to focus on the treatment side for a second, and I think everyone's in agreement that we need to ensure that we have addiction treatment available. Uh, so the idea that this is unique to Alberta, unique to the Alberta government, I mean, obviously, there, there's a universal belief here that the treatment needs to be a focus. But what, what are the obstacles that exist as you see it to ensuring that those who, who need treatment can get it?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about involuntary treatment. Well, we haven't even provided a voluntary treatment model for most people to access. So when I spoke with um addictions experts and physicians, they've told me that two hours. That's it. Two hours is the optimal window when someone who has opioid use disorder and says, I want help to get them started on treatment, not on a wait list, not mm-hmm. we'll see you next week. But in a clinic, getting started on, for example, a stabilization medication uh, like something like Suboxone, which can help reduce the the cravings and um, and and reduce your use of illicit substances. That's how much time you've got. So that's number one needs to be rapidly available. Number two, treatment needs to be evidence based. Again, detox alone is not medically recommended by uh, guidelines from the Canadian Medical Journal, and it's been shown to reduce uh, to increase rather. Um, overdose deaths, so it needs to be evidence-based. Uh, number three, it needs to be available in ways that are culturally appropriate and meets people where they're at. You know, it can't be just clinical. Um, if it's, you know, religious, I, look, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but if someone isn't, they should not be funneled into a Christian-based recovery program. Okay, um, they, that's the decision they need to make for themselves. It shouldn't be um, something that's sort of foisted on them, and and we need to have programs that are that are readily accessible. Uh, an example of that is the First Nations Health Authority in BC has uh, had a tremendous amount of programming and success around things like land-based recovery programs for indigenous people. So we need to do things and realize there's not a one-size-fits-all all models. So those are those are a few examples and, and of course it needs to be freely available. This is a healthcare issue, it's not a criminal justice issue. So rather than putting more money into a flawed enforcement model like the UCP government seems to be going behind, it needs to uh, quite frankly get over its its um, you know, decades-long opposition by conservatives of life-saving things like like the harm reduction measures we talked about and bring its treatment model into line with medical uh, the best medical evidence we have.
0: We'll leave it there for now. Professor Ben Perrin, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you, Rob. Well, there you go. That's Benjamin Perrin, a law professor at UBC, author of the book Overdose, Heartbreaking Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. Also author of the book Indictment, the criminal justice system on trial coming up this October. Interestingly, uh, Ben Perrin was an advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and has certainly had uh, an evolution uh, in his views on this particular issue. But I think makes some interesting points. Now, here's the thing. At the end of the day, though, you know, regardless of what you feel the approach should be, we've had a dishonest uh, approach from the Alberta government. That, you know, claiming that their approach was saving lives and sitting on hiding data that told us a much different story. I mean, that's a problem. It's a problem regardless of where you stand on this issue. But the government wasn't being honest with us that the situation was getting worse. They claimed it was getting better and they didn't release the numbers that showed us it was getting worse, but they couldn't keep that under wraps forever. Uh, so now we see uh, the situation is indeed getting worse. April of this year, 179 deaths related to opioid use, and that's the highest number since we started keeping track of this. Still to come in this hour, we're going to talk about what's going on at one grocery store, Calgary Co-op. And a few years ago, Calgary Co-op came up with a really unique solution uh, to increasing concern about plastic bags and plastic waste. Let's develop a bag that isn't plastic. That might look and feel like plastic, but isn't. One that could be compostable. Uh, So they worked with a company called Leaf Environmental Products based here in Calgary. And they came up with a really unique solution. These green bags that you've probably seen if you shopped at Co-op, that you buy the till for, I think it was 10 cents, maybe now it's 15 cents. But it's pretty handy because you can reuse them. You can use them as a compost bin liner. You can put your compost in those bags. You can put them in the green bin. They're compostable. And Co-op worked with the city of Calgary to make sure that the green bins could take these bags, they could process these bags was great. So along comes the federal government and their ban on single-use plastics. Okay, this shouldn't be a problem. These bags are not plastic, do not contain any plastic. Yet somehow, they fall under this ban. So Calgary Co-op, after December 20th, won't be able to offer these to consumers. Now, here's the weird paradox in all of this. They're banned, but you can still buy them. You buy them in bulk. That means they have to be packaged in bulk. That means they have to be contained within some additional packaging, which means additional waste. So you can go into Calgary Call Up. You can buy a, a big bundle of these, and the bags will all be wrapped up in something, so you have to rip it open, throw out that waste just to use these bags. Bags which are compostable, bags which contain no plastic. Like, it makes no sense at all. And what's really frustrating about it, too, is that here we have two private companies, Calgary Co-op and Leaf Environmental Products, that came up with a really innovative approach. Like, no government came up with this. They came up with it. Uh, With an idea that had some environmental benefits, an idea that had appeal to consumers, an idea that just made sense. So not only is it boneheaded policy from the federal government, it's the kind of policy that just crushes that kind of innovation. Like this is what we want industry to come up with. And, And so that's what's so annoying about this on top of everything else. Why would a ban on single-use plastics include something that isn't plastic in the first place? Like, just stupid from top to bottom. Yet, federal government's not relenting. Uh, They're not going to issue any kind of an exemption here or an exception, uh, despite the pressure from consumers, from the city of Calgary. I think that's going to come up at City Hall tomorrow. Uh, Some conversation around this because the mayor had reached out uh, to Environment Canada to no avail. So, unfortunately, that's where things are stuck. uh, That The federal government is is going ahead with this. And it's a slap in the face to these companies. It's a slap in the face to the consumers who, who like and use and appreciate these bags. It just makes no sense. So we'll hear from uh, the CEO of Calgary Co-op coming up in a few minutes. We're also going to hear from the uh, president and founder of Leaf Environmental Products that went about creating this bag in the first place, which, as I say, was really innovative. And the kind of thing we should want industry to be doing, instead, we're going to tell them to stop. And joining us uh, for more is Ken Keeler, who is a CEO of Calgary Co-op, much more Calgary Co-op, Ken, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on the program, Rob. Uh,
0: So what is the status as of now? I guess nothing has really changed in terms of the rules that are going to come into effect later this year.
2: Yeah, we are continuing to to dialogue uh, with the government at at all levels, uh, Rob, and we continue to be hopeful that an exception will be created uh, for our compostable bags. Um, And so uh, the the dialogue continues, and uh, the deadline approaches, though. Uh, December 20th is when uh, the the implementation uh, kicks in, but we've been talking for a while now.
0: Well, and I mean, even that deadline's a few months away. I would imagine there, there would be a need for some, some planning. You would have to start getting ready for that, that change if indeed it is going to occur. So in terms Absolutely. of your organization and your planning purposes, what kind of a timeline are you on here?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right about the planning. You know, Calgary Co-op is uh, North America's uh, largest retail cooperative with $1.2 in in revenues. 400,000 members who count on us. We're owned by our membership. Uh, We're uh, in various lines of business. These bags are used. We're in food and fuel. We're in the health and wellness business with uh, pharmacy and home health care and natural foods. We have a recreational usage business, which is liquor and cannabis. And of course we're in real estate as well. So everything we do has to be planned and mapped out months in advance. So at this stage, we continue to have the dialogue. We're asking for an exception to be made in Calgary, where we worked hard with the city of Calgary uh, over three years ago to uh, move to compostable bags and completely remove plastic Mm -hmm. bags uh, from our checkout. So just to give you an idea of the volume of change, 33 million plastic bags a year, or over 100 million plastic bags, have been kept out of landfill thanks to these compostables. So uh, for our customers, there's hundreds of thousands of transactions every day. We have to work well in advance to figure out how to explain to them the change and how to seek their support because they know and love these bags. They've been using them in our stores and in their green bins at home for over three years, long before this ban was even, even announced. So we're going to have these bags available for them, obviously, till the 20th of December and ideally later if we get an exception. But beyond that, our plan is to sell these bags in bundles. So they will still be available to our customers. Mm-hmm. So bundles of, let's say, five bags that customers can buy at the, uh, in the store, potentially use in their green bins. Uh, customers could turn around and ask us to put their groceries in these bags at the checkout, and we would, we would uh, obey our customers. Uh, and, of course, we'll have alternatives. So yeah. we uh, reusable bags, totes. Uh, we also have uh, produce bags that we launched uh, over a year ago now, which are reusable mesh bags in produce.
0: I think what's so disappointing about all of this is just how unique this innovation was, and it seemed like a really creative solution to a problem we're trying to address, and and that's not being recognized here. So let's kind of go through that because, first of all, as you alluded to, and it's worth pointing out, these bags don't contain any plastic, right? They might look or feel like plastic bags, but there's no plastic in them.
2: Yes, there are multiple tests have been conducted to show that these bags are 0% plastic. We invested a lot of time uh, with the city of Calgary, worked collaboratively. The city endorses these bags. We have letters from our mayor and our councillors supporting us uh, recently uh, in our quest to to get an exception. We worked with our supplier, they worked really hard, and the theory here really was to encourage composting in this city. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our city's facilities break these bags down perfectly, and they've confirmed that, and uh, you know, it was a very innovative solution at the time. We were actually worried that all of our competitors would copy this, and uh, we do have a few uh, retailers I'm aware of across the country, as well as in other parts of the world, uh, that have moved to this solution because it's, it's uh, just so practical. And, uh, you know, the reality is, should we terminate sale of these, which we don't plan to, uh, you know, our customers would need to buy a green bin liner anyway. So it's almost yeah. like we would be uh, demarketing the process of composting if we withdrew these bags.
0: Right, and, and you started doing this a few years ago. I mean, you know, when, when you look at all the conversations that have happened since around single-use plastic, I mean, th- this was really ahead of the curve.
2: It was in 2019, actually, we began to test these bags. And uh, in 2020, uh, overwhelmingly, from all our lines of business, customers were saying, get rid of the plastic bags. We're ready to, to use these bags. So uh, cashiers uh, who are right at the front lines of our business worked very hard in those days to explain to customers what these bags were because it's a 15 cents a bag. Uh, it's, you know, You have to pay that every time you're buying these. But when you compare that $0.15 per bag to the compostable bags sold by the brands, national brands, on our shelves, those are much more expensive. So actually 15 cents is a hell of a deal. So our customers over three years ago began to use these. They're very used to them. And in fact, now they will come into the store and uh, they pause at the checkout and, and the, the cashier says, do you want me to use compostable bags? And they say yes mm-hmm. when they're out of bags at home. <laughs> yeah. And if not, they bring their own reusable bag in because they go, yeah, I got enough compostables at home to, to tide me over this month. So they're actually planning their uh, bagging like they never used to.
0: Have you got any kind of an explanation then from federal officials as to why they're not budging or why they view the bags the way they do?
2: Yes. Well, first I would say, and I want to make it very clear, Calgary Co-op supports the plastic bag ban. In fact... You know, you can see by the innovation we did that we were thinking about this years ago. So we are very supportive of the ban. What we're not happy with is the inclusion of our bags, which we found out purely because we were doing our diligence about a year ago. Uh, we engaged with Environment and Climate Control Canada when we heard about this ban. And we were just engaging to confirm that our bags were not included. <laughs> you know, we, we were like 99.9% sure they weren't because we had done a good thing. Yeah. We didn't expect to get our knuckles wrapped. And they said, no, they're included so then we learned that there are uh, several municipalities across the country where these type of bags uh, are not easily separatable in the uh, you know when 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 i guess the garbage is picked up and compostables are picked up so we confirmed with the city at that time and the city said, yeah, our facilities, our processes and technologies do support these bags 100%. And in fact, we'll give you letters of support if you need them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we've been, uh, you know, that's the explanation we've received each time. Uh, we were told there was some consultation, but the consultation was during the COVID timeframe when we were extremely busy as an essential service. Our city did provide feedback to, uh, you know, Environment and controlled Canada during that timeframe. But for some reason, uh, there's not a willingness to budge on this, uh, and we're quite disappointed. Uh, if you talk to our customers and our members, I'm sure they would petition the heck out of this if they heard about it. Our challenge in December, by the way, December 20th, that is the busiest week in retail in the whole year. Our challenge is going to be explaining this to them so they don't feel like Calgary Corp has pulled the rug out from under their, their feet.
0: Let's hope something changes uh, soon. In the meantime, much more at calgarycoop.com. Ken, thank you so much for joining us uh, here today. Appreciate you making some time for us.
2: Thank you very much, Rob. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
0: All right, you as well. There you go. That's uh, Ken Keeler, CEO of Calgary Co-op. So, I mean, they're hoping that maybe some common sense can prevail here. Otherwise, they've got to start making plans for a, a switch here. Now, we'll find out more in a few minutes uh, how these bags were developed in the first place because it wasn't just Calgary Co-op wanting to do this. It was being able to find a partner that could make it happen. So we'll look at that side uh, coming up after 1.30. Look, and a few people are saying, well, what if Calgary Co-op just ignores these rules or somehow the Alberta government can do something like wave the Sovereignty Act wand around? Hey, look, at the end of the day, these are the federal rules and regulations that are going to be in place. And we can all agree that they're stupid. But at the end of the day, it's Calgary Co-op that would have to go out on a limb and say we're just going to ignore federal regulations, which uh, entails all kind of risks. So that all falls on them. Uh, So I can't imagine uh, that they would want to do that. And I'm not really sure what the Alberta government or or the rest of us can do to that end. Um, So, like I said, we'll see what what happens uh, in the coming weeks here. Coming up after 1.30, we'll chat with uh, Jerry Gow, who's uh, president and founder of LEAF Environmental Products, and uh, out a bit more about their role in creating these bags and how they feel about all of this. So as mentioned, December 20th is when the uh, single-use plastics ban rules and regulations all come into effect. And for now, as it stands, these bags, made by LEAF for co-op, that contain no plastic whatsoever, fully compostable, here in Calgary, uh, will be banned. We're <music> going to continue this conversation about uh, these uh, bags that Calgary Co-op uh, currently offers to customers at uh, 15 cents each. Bags that kind of look and feel like plastic grocery bags, but in fact are not plastic at all. Uh, these bags are fully compostable we heard from uh, the CEO of Calgary Co-op, and he talked about, you know, making sure that they worked with Calgary officials so that the green bins, the, the composting facilities could handle these, these bags. And they do. So Calgary is very supportive of Calgary Co-op. But it was one thing to have an idea for this, and it was another thing to make it happen. Uh, so that's where our next guest and uh, his company comes in. Uh, because they worked with uh, Calgary Co-op to develop these bags and to make sure that they are not plastic. And that's a real focus uh, of the work they do. So I want to bring into the conversation here this afternoon Jerry Gow, who is uh, president and founder of LEAF Environmental Products. Uh, Jerry, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for
4: having me.
0: Uh, So let's go back to the beginning here, this uh, relationship with Calgary Co-op. I I assume that maybe they approached you, or, or how did this all come about to begin with?
4: Uh, so a, a quick introduction about uh, myself and my company so actually um, I'm back uh, my background is actually in accounting and finance but um, um, I loathe single-use plastic um, I grew up uh, in Vancouver and um, when I was a kid we never uh, the beaches were clean and you know people went down to Kisilano and, and to Wreck Beach to Spanish banks and uh, everybody seemed to have a really good time but over time I noticed more and more plastic on our beaches and started to realize it wasn't people littering, it was actually washing up shore. So um, I have a huge problem with uh, single-use plastics. Uh, I despise them because uh, we're making something single-use out of a material that was designed to last for a very, very long time. So I started this company, uh, Leaf, about seven years ago with a mission to eliminate single-use plastics uh, from our society, um, Calgary Co-op had reached out to us um, and asked us if there was any um, any product that we had um, that could help them eliminate uh, or significant reduce, significantly reduce their plastic footprint, uh, which is uh, in my warehouse, uh, in, in our roundhouse, and I, I produced these uh, compostable bags, and that's where we got the conversation started. And. Um, in, in the last couple of years um, that we work with Calwe Co-op, we've eliminated you know, more than 100 million pieces of single-use plastics through uh, our substitute compostable bags.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you guys make a lot of different products, like uh, you know food packaging, uh, doggy poop bags, uh, all that kind of stuff. That's that's all compostable, which would typically be plastic, but but you guys create alternatives.
4: Correct. Um, we just feel like. Um, we created single-use plastics out of convenience, um, but I, I, I think there is a solution for um, all these single-use plastics out there. Now, we're not going to be able to change consumer behavior that easily because there's always that inertia to go for the most convenient product. So to us, the next best thing was the, to produce something that's single-use, but also um, doesn't leave an environmental footprint.
0: So were you surprised to find out then that these bags that you make for co op are, are going to fall under the, the government's ban on single use plastic?
4: I was. I was extremely surprised. Um so um uh, on my uh on my spare time I, I love um I'm I'm kind of a waste nerd, so anything that has to do with environmental policy, especially relating to um plastic elimination uh and uh plastic reduction policies, I'm pretty active in uh so when um when our our federal government started um talking to the public uh doing the consultations for for single-use plastics and and how they should implement the banners um naturally part of that conversation um uh, as well i was very fortunate to have an invite to that um but the more i i um became part of the the more i participated uh the more i realized hey they kind of um, have their own information about this product and uh, we tried quite hard uh, to give them uh, tons of peer-reviewed data, uh, tons of uh, case studies in uh, various dis- different jurisdictions uh, in places, uh, various OECD countries that are, that are quite similar to Canada um, so uh, we were quite surprised at their final decision to uh, include um, our compostable bags as a, as a non-conventional plastic is, is the term they use in their bags.
0: That's a weird term because, I mean, something's either plastic or it isn't. These bags contain no plastic. So what what does that term, what is that supposed to mean, non-conventional plastic?
4: That's our question for them as well. It seems like uh, everything that's not um, polyethylene-based has been lumped into this one single category called uh, unconventional plastics, but we've gone... Uh, one step further and uh in addition to the to the third party testing that we did um to get certified as a compostable product with uh with the b p i uh we 've actually um, done our own independent testing with s g s which is one of the biggest um third party testing labs in the world to show that there is no plastic in the product at all so uh yeah it was it was quite surprising to us that uh it unfolded this way.
0: What's your concern as to what this might do to this kind of innovation? Like, this comes, you know, you're a private company, Calgary call up a private company, you guys come up with this product, and, you know, unfortunately it feels like instead of encouraging this, we're we're kind of discouraging this, we're getting in the way of
4: this. Uh, it's very unfortunate. Um, there's a couple of things that uh, immediately um, we had to stop doing uh, because of this ban. So, um in terms of producing these compostable resins, um, we've had them for a very long time in the world, um, about uh, almost three decades ago, a, a company by the name of Basif, um in, in Europe came up, uh, came out with this uh, compostable resin to uh, tackle uh, the problems of single-use plastic, especially in, in, in Europe because of, you know, their density and, and how much they, uh, how much of this, of uh, single-use plastic they produce. So, um, uh, Canada, especially Alberta, actually, we're in a perfect um, position, perfect uh, geographically, perfect with the amount of um, resources and the type of resources that we have that we can actually start manufacturing the resin itself. Um, the resin itself is only produced in in two places in the world, um, one being uh, Italy uh, f- from Bassis and the other being China. So, to us, uh, you know, we saw a huge opportunity. We saw that the state of California had banned. Finger uh, use plastic bags, and you know they were using compostable bags a, as a solution. Uh, we saw in other jurisdictions around the world that um, you know everybody kind of seemed to be going this way because of um, the efficacy of of this solution. So our plan was actually to uh, start manufacturing upstream to to make the the resin and and hopefully you know export um, this environmentally friendly solution um, to the rest of the world. But since we're being shut off at the domestic level it's, it's quite hard um, to um, to to move forward with that um, the second thing is it it really forced us to look at what we could do because we're um, you know we still have to pay our bills so we looked at the government's regulation and, and uh, we try to figure out what is the government what direction do they want us to head to so um, if you read the science assessment by Environment Canada uh, they're proposing that by by um, outlawing single-use plastics, uh, especially plastic bags, in the next ten years, we will a- be able to eliminate about 1.4 to 1.5 million tons of plastics from our society. but um, their, their recommended solution was let's just replace them with, with um, paper products. so we saw that in their study um, in addition to eliminating you know 1.5 Million tons of single-use plastics. They're saying you should replace it with paper and reusable bags. Um, reusable bags are great, um, but I, I, I think there's still room for um, for another product because uh, let's face it, we all have a drawer full of a drawer full of. <laughs> Reusable plastic bags, and a lot of, yeah. uh, I would say, 99.9% of these reusable bags are, are made from recycled plastic, but they themselves aren't recyclable because um, they, they're made from a plastic composite. So um, it's very hard to recycle. Um, the other thing the government wanted us to do is to, uh, to replace it with with paper bags, but uh, as we can see, um, it takes about you know 700. Uh, it, it, a, a single tree makes about 700 paper bags. So uh, to replace the 16 billion pieces of uh, single-use plastic bags that we, we use currently in our society, you'd have to cut down approximately about 200 million trees in, in the next 10 years to, to make enough plastic bags to, to be a substitute. Um, so we've started to, uh, to look at paper bags and, and marketing paper bags as an alternative to our clients. Um, much to much to their display, uh, dismay, because uh, most people thought, "Hey, you know, we have this product that's working perfectly. It's, uh, most municipalities in in Canada approve it. Uh, we have uh, approval on, on specifically uh, on the municipal municipal level, especially from the city of Calgary." Uh, to say that hey th- these bags aren 't plastic they they help with uh, the organics program because yes. it encourages people to um, to collect their their compost. It makes it easier instead of um, you know lining it with with lining our compost bins with with, with um, newsprint it 's just an easier way to do it so um, w- we were forced to to look at alternatives that uh, to us aren 't um, a very good solution because we changed from paper bags to to single use plastic bags in the eighties because um, we wanted to save more trees but now we're saying let's cut down, you know, two hundred million trees in the next ten years to make paper bags. So to us that was um, we were we were quite uh, surprised.
0: Well, yeah, no kidding. And I mean, further to that, because you know, co-op will be able now to sell these bags in bulk instead of you know selling them individually to, to customers. So I would imagine then that's going to mean a pivot to have to come up with some kind of packaging to sell these in bulk. What, what is it going to mean for the production side? Uh,
4: the production is is quite easy. Um, we're more um, at, we're n- more perplexed at um, the position that Environmental Environment Canada has taken on this to say that. Uh, it's perfectly okay to sell them off the shelf but yeah. um to sell them at the till um for uh for people that want to bag their groceries at the till uh it's it's against the law so um and they made that perfectly clear to us they said hey you guys can keep selling it um on the shelf and you know to us we said it's exactly the the same thing. It, it works the same. It, it performs exactly the same. So why can't we have it? And I believe the word um, visibility was, was used uh, multiple times in, in, in those discussions. So uh, you can imagine our frustration.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think we shared, uh, Jerry. We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more on your company, the work you do. It's dot L-E-P-I-Canada, LEPICanada.com, Leaf Environmental Products. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this.
4: Thank you so much for having
0: me. All the best, Jerry. Take care. Uh, this is Jerry Gow, who's uh, founder and president of LEAF Environmental Products, LEPICanada.com. And, and they do some really interesting stuff. And so this is a, like a market <laughs> response <laughs> to addressing this problem that the government says wants to be addressed. And they just said, yeah, but we don't like the way you're doing it. So now we're just going to crap all over it. It's just, yeah, it's ridiculous at so many levels. <music> The inflation rate is down uh, in the month of May, for the month of May, year over year, 3.4% increase, uh, which is encouraging. And that's certainly well down from where we were at the heights uh, of the inflation crisis. Now, food inflation uh, still running pretty hot, 9% increase year over year. Uh, there's also the impact of the interest rate hikes where mortgage payments, that's contributing um, to to the uh, overall interest or, or the overall inflation rate. Uh, but even though things are, are getting closer and closer to that target range, it might not be enough to discourage or dissuade the Bank of Canada from one more rate hike. Two weeks from tomorrow, I guess we'll find out uh, what the bank's next steps are. Uh, so how encouraging is this number? What does it uh, represent in terms of uh, getting inflation back within that target range. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on on today's data and uh, what to expect from the bank in a couple of weeks, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Stephen Brown, uh, who's uh, Deputy uh, Chief Economist from North America at Capital Economics. Stephen, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
5: Hi there. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, so let's talk about the uh, overall number. First of all, 3.4%, which, I say, you know, as I say, it's, it's down considerably from where we were at the, the heights of this crisis. But uh, wh- what did you make of that, first of
5: all? Yes, it's uh, certainly down considerably. I think it's, it's it's a strange world we're living in in which 3.4% feels like a good result. Right. Um, certainly compared to the peak of, of more than 8%, it is, it is a great uh, result. But it's still almost you know double what we were used to before the pandemic and certainly uh, more than the, the central bank's official target of 2%. So it's clear that there is a bit more work to do. And that 3.4% is, is obviously eating in a, into a lot of people's uh, real spending power at the moment. So hopefully we'll see inflation continue to come down. But we do I think the Bank of Canada will end up having to raise interest rates once more in a couple of weeks to get that to happen.
0: Well, we'll get to that in a second. What's still driving inflation right now, as best we can tell?
5: Yeah, so there are a few things. So I, I know you did mention mortgage interest costs there. Um, I think that's that's a bit of an un, unfair characterization. I know a lot of people have been making it. But one of the important things uh, for the consumer price basket is it also includes house prices. Yeah. And the annual yeah. rate for house prices inflation is negative at the moment. So if you take those two things together, because obviously higher mortgage rates have, have pushed down house prices in most parts of the country, uh, they sort of net out quite a bit. So it's not not quite this encouraging story that if we just took out mortgage interest costs, it wouldn't look so bad. Um, When we look at core inflation. So, it's this idea in Canada, it's a bit different from elsewhere. But in the big picture is you take out food and energy or, or the, the volatile factors behind um, prices. Uh, but the average rate there is still about 3.9%. So, we're still double, double the target. Um, but there have been some encouraging signs. If we look just at month-on-month changes, uh, the latest month for May was a, a 0.2% rise. So, if you, if you did that every month for a year, about 2.7%. So, we're, we're definitely getting closer to that 2% figure it's just that there's still a bit more
0: work to do. well what has changed i mean the start of the year the bank uh indicated that that they were prepared to to pause any future rate hikes and and see how things were progressing we did get a, a rate hike most recently as you say. We're, we're likely to get another in a couple of weeks why did they come to the conclusion that maybe one or two further increases would, would be necessary
5: yeah I think two, two key factors really, and, and the big one being just the housing market when we When the bank paused in January and sort of had house price data up till the end of 2022 across the country, prices were still falling about one.5 to two percent month on month. so you know some, some big numbers on a consistent basis. But as soon as the bank sort of signaled that conditional pause. They called it. Um, the housing market turned around. Consumer confidence rose very sharply again. Uh, people just took it as a sign that the, the worst of the pain was over, which you know is essentially what the bank told everyone. Um, the problem is that 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 has then sort of acted as this trigger for a, not not a stabilize stabilization in the housing market, but a rapid turnaround. So we're seeing prices rise by over 2% month on month in May. Uh, and, and sort of the, the forward-looking indicators we have for prices point to similar results in the coming months. So essentially that housing is supposed to be the most interest rate sensitive part of the economy. So if that's turning around even when interest rates are quite high as they are now. It sort of suggests to the bank that there's still more work to do. You know, the, the bank won't only concentrate on the housing market, but the other key thing is, is the labor market. So up until May at least. The labour market was was looking extremely strong. The unemployment rate was just fixed at five percent for for I think six months in a row. We did see the unemployment rate rise in May to 5.2 percent, and we will get another set of labour market data for June uh, next week, so before the Bank's meeting. And I think that's really going to determine how how the Bank moves in July. It's possible we will see the labour market weaken a bit more. That that's just not the sense we get from the surveys at the moment so firms still tell us they want to hire more workers so it could just be that the drop in employment in May was a blip so it, that's why we think it's likely that the bank will will end up raising rates again next month
0: right which makes sense and certainly the housing market as you say very sensitive to interest rate hikes I do wonder about you know food prices and, and grocery prices because you know that you know nine percent was the uh, you know the food inflation rate for May so that, that still remains pretty hot and I would imagine that's much less sensitive to interest interest rate hikes, uh, that that's got to be a source of frustration, maybe even for the Bank of Canada, that that remains an issue. And that's a lot harder to tackle. It's not even necessarily clear as to, to why we're still seeing prices where they are.
5: Yeah, exactly. And it, it's a source of frustration for two reasons. One is obviously just the direct impact on overall inflation, uh, keeping it high. But then the other thing is, is the way it plays into people's inflation expectations. So the you know what people expect inflation to be can have a bearing on what inflation actually is because people just get used to paying these higher prices, and some of the, the prices for essentials tend to have a, a big role in that. So housing rents, gasoline, and, and food being a key one. So the, the fact that people are still seeing these very high rates of food inflation is a concern for the bank from a, a broader inflation expectations perspective as well. The reason is is it's hard to discern really because when we look at the US you know both countries normally follow similar trends in food inflation we've seen food prices in the US drop back for most of the last few months and we just haven't seen seen that yet in Canada so i think it, you know we have to start thinking about other factors such as you know the concentrated grocery industry here there's really not that much choice if if you know fresh fruit and vegetable prices are high well if you want if you want them you have you have to pay because there just isn 't that competition uh, to go elsewhere so I think that's that's certainly a, a source of the issue i mean the good news is if we look at wholesale agricultural prices, they have been coming down. The, the annual rate of inflation for those sort of uh, commodity industries for food are looking a lot more favorable. So we should see food inflation slow over the rest of the year. It's just that it might remain a bit higher than, than would really be ideal.
0: Yeah. All right. So as you alluded to, we, we're expecting, well, we'll get an announcement, one way or the other, I guess, on July 12th from the bank, but the expectation maybe be that, that we see one more rate increase, another quarter of a point perhaps. Does it feel to you like 5% then is, is kind of the ceiling for now?
5: Yes, I think so i mean we i mean to be fair, there are some economists now already saying that the bank probably won't hike in in July um and then by September, it just won't feel the need to go much further. I think because of the housing story and the just the psychological impact of of The earlier pause and the fact that the bank needs to make it clear that rates could still rise further, there really really is that justification to do at least one more rate hike but yeah when 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 we look at things like the inflation data is quite encouraging, and then look in the background at the labor market, some of the vacancies are falling uh, firms in increasing share say they're having trouble expanding their business because of financing costs. All those reasons suggest that the economy is going to slow. A recession, just a relatively mild recession, uh, is still quite likely later this year. And I think those are all factors to make the bank think it probably doesn't need to go much further than 5%. So by September, it probably will be prepared. It might not feel that it should signal at this time as explicitly as it did before, but I wouldn't expect any interest rate hikes beyond the summer.
0: Now, there's a question longer term, then, and, and you know whether there might be some rate uh, cuts in the future. And that's looking longer term. And I guess, as you say, we need to see what kind of a recession we see this year, if we see one at all. I mean, what would it take to get to the bank to, to the point of considering whether to start going in the opposite direction?
5: Yeah, I think certainly if the, the sort of one of the big issues for the bank currently is, is, because inflation expectations of, of firms and businesses are high, the, sort of the real inflation-adjusted interest rates still qu- qu- look quite low. So, what I mean is you know, the, nominal, the, the actual interest rate is 5%. Only recently, inflation was 5%. So, in, in sort of price-adjusted terms, the real policy rate, as we call it, is 0%. As inflation comes down again, there's a pretty strong case for the bank to start cutting the interest rate to keep that so-called real policy rate um, close to around 1% probably. Uh, And so we're forecasting that the bank will eventually cut the policy rate from 5% uh, to three percent next year, that would still leave it a fair bit higher than before the pandemic when it peaked at one point seven five percent but certainly, I think because you know people are used to the idea that inflation can pick up again, uh, strong immigration is going to keep the housing market looking um, you know house prices probably will rebound and c- going to keep going so I think for those reasons the bank isn 't going to cut interest rates all the way back to where they were before, but certainly some some cuts are likely next year.
0: All right. Well, we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks, first of all, and, and beyond. But uh, we'll leave it there for now. Much more capitaleconomics.com. Stephen, appreciate the overview of all this. Thanks for joining us here.
5: Hey, Thanks for having me. All the
0: all bets. Right. Uh, that is uh, Stephen Brown, uh, Chief uh, Deputy uh, Deputy Chief Economist for North America at Capitaleconomics, capitaleconomics.com. So, th- yeah, there's there's some disagreements. Uh, there are some who, who think the bank maybe will hold the line for now, whether it's expecting maybe another slight increase on July 12th from the bank but probably not much beyond that. Uh, so we'll see. So some encouraging inflation data for the month of May, but maybe still some indication that the bank uh, feels it's, it's not yet job done uh, on their part. So we'll, we'll see what they come back with. But it's at least encouraging that we're getting closer. Again, that mandate for the Bank of Canada is to hold inflation between 1% and 3%. So inflation at 3.4% uh, for the month of May. If you look at that core inflation and what we've seen over the last few months, you know, that averages out pretty much within that range. So we're getting closer. so as stats cam pointed out today uh, food inflation is still running hot nine percent year over year so why is that if inflation is coming down elsewhere why are food prices so high now food prices aren't just on the grocery store shelves i mean it's it's restaurants it's elsewhere but grocery prices are a big part of it and that's where we get the food to to put in our refrigerators put in our shelves put on our tables So why have we seen those prices increase? Well, the Competition Bureau has been looking into that question, and they've released their report today on the grocery industry. They fear, their concern is that there is too much concentration among some big players in the sector. They would like to see more competition. They would like to see more independent grocers uh, on the Canadian scene. So, how do we do that? And how big a problem is this uh, lack of competition? Well, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program. Uh, one of the experts who provided some input to this Competition Bureau report, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, is director of the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Charlebois, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I mean, as mentioned, you've been following this. You you offered some input as well in the Competition Bureau's work. So I don't know. Were you surprised by anything they came out with today?
3: Not really. Uh, I mean, uh, as we were talking uh, with the Bureau, it became clear to us that this study uh, was very much for the Bureau itself. <laughs> and if you read the report, many times it is mentioned that we that they couldn't get data from major players in the industry which means that they just don't have enough authority and and yeah. that's the that's the biggest problem i think and and of course nobody will actually uh... will admit that they don't have enough authority and uh... but it is uh, it is a report that will be read by parliamentarians and and they are reviewing the competition act right now and and we are talking about again the bread scandal and uh some collusion going on uh potentially beyond just bread and uh, that's the big elephant in the room and uh if you want more competition in in the country you absolutely need you know a, a you need you need a a, a forceful watchdog with teeth with teeth and right now we just don't have that
0: by the way, as mentioned this this report coincides with the stats can data today, so, you know, underscoring the urgency of this issue. 9% is the year-over-year increase in food prices. So, th- that that problem's not going away. What did you make of those numbers?
3: Uh well, I, so the food inflation rate is still dropping, uh marginally though. I mean, by 0.1% compared to 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 April. But uh, we're still uh, – I would say that, that that is probably the last month where we see a, a 9%. Uh, we are expecting the food inflation rate to continue to drop over time. Um, ironically, the one food category that is pushing uh, the food inflation rate higher is, you guessed it, bakery goods. Mm, <laughs> a, a, a week after we learned that Canada Bread was paying a $50 million fine, so I mean – I, I think Canadians have every right to be a bit cynical here.
0: Let's get back to the reports. So the Competition Bureau uh, believes there's not enough competition. We've got some big players uh, in Canada in, in the grocery space. Um, and, and I mean maybe that, maybe that doesn't include Walmart and Costco, so that almost makes it five, so the, the three kind of grocery players and maybe those two. So wh- what do you make of that conclusion?
3: Well, I mean... Uh, yes, we don't have enough competition, and I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, but would you actually expect the competition to say that we had too much competition? Right, exactly. You know, so that's so. Yeah, I, I think it. I mean, the report uh, states the obvious, but at the same time, uh, what we need to 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 realize is that there's a lot of power held by a few people. There's there are there's nothing wrong with oligopolies. But if an oligopoly uh, has too much power, then it becomes a problem, and I think that's where we're at right now with the food industry. And the code of conduct, to me, uh, endorsing the code of conduct was quite critical today uh, in the report. Uh, it has nothing to do with the with the bureau, but I think it, it assisted to that that it is mentioned in in the study just because uh, the bureau recognized uh, the importance of the code, and that would actually increase competition. In processing and in retail as well, Uh, I suspect many of your listeners wouldn't even know what the code is, let alone how it works. But at the end of the day, the code basically would democratize the whole system. Instead of giving power to just a handful of companies like Walmart and Loblaw, you would actually give – uh, more power to, uh, to small and medium-sized businesses that just don't have a voice right now. They, 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 get, they get clobbered by some of the giants right now. When, when, that, when there's a decision that has to be made, if you're delisted uh, or things like that, you have no place to go. The code would actually give them a safe place to go.
0: Right. So, that, you know, there's some concrete steps that can be taken here. So who needs to take the lead, or Who does the, the responsibility fall
3: to? Well, I think, I mean, got the, the, the Competition Act is being revised right now. So I think Parliament has a big role to play. But the recognition that all levels of government have to play a role is also critical, and that's what the report does. Uh, I mean, right now, there's some land grabbing going on in small towns. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, you, you can actually see laws by a few lots in downtown uh, Drumheller, for example, uh, to make sure that the competition doesn't build a grocery store across the street. It's happening. I mean, it's happening everywhere, and so uh, you know, councils, city councils uh, would want to ask a, a few more questions now if if it happens, and so that's that's a signal that that I think was needed in the report.
0: Yeah, there, there are a lot of advantages that the, the big players have. That's one, you know, the real estate advantage and putting the smaller competitors at a disadvantage. But there, there are others too, right? Other advantages that these big players have for themselves.
3: Oh, absolutely. And so, of course, uh, Loblaws and Walmart won't complain uh, of the power that they have. Uh, but right now, it's it's beyond ridiculous. They actually make decisions uh, almost overnight they, they implement new fees, new rules overnight, and uh, there's no appeal, there's no negotiations. That's why last year's uh, pause sell between Fidolet and, and and Loblaw was actually quite critical. Uh, for the first time, you saw publicly a company uh, go head-to-head with Loblaw. That was a first. That was a bit of a right. wake-up call for everyone.
0: Yeah, that was interesting. Um, and as it pertains to, to grocery prices, though, is, you know the Bureau itself says we did not set out to explain or understand all the reasons why grocery prices have increased. So what is the connection here? Because if there were more competition, then perhaps prices would be somewhat lower than they are. But the Bureau is not saying that this lack of competition is a reason why food prices are so high. So w- what are we to conclude on that side?
3: Well, that's that's the thing, and, and that's why I mean, a couple of weeks ago, the House of Commons actually uh, uh, tabled its report and uh, talked about the windfall tasks, uh, uh, tax, saying that if the bureau finds any evidence of gouging, then we should we should implement a windfall tax. But the, the mandate, the study itself, had nothing to do with, with assessing profiteering at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this old greedflation campaign was was a false debate. Mm-hmm. It, it was really, uh, you, you looked at a company or a set of companies dealing with, uh, with new costs, essentially, and, and a, a very complicated world. Canada still has one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. Uh, what, but with the bread story, that's a real problem. I think the food industry has a price-fixing culture problem. Uh, we've normalized... I think in industry, we've normalized price-fixing. Some executives don't know that some of the things that they're doing is, is wrong and illegal, and that needs to be fixed, and that would be the Bureau's job to do that.
0: Right, and it was the Competition Bureau that was leading that that bread price-fixing investigation. That, that, that's their jurisdiction, isn't it?
3: And it's been going on for eight years, and it's still not over. Yeah. It's ridiculous. People... Keynes... W- are, are, are done. They're, they don't, they're not willing to tolerate that anymore. I mean, right now, the, the, the strategy at the Bureau is to just wait for people to confess. That's not yeah. a strategy.
0: <laughs> oh, no, you're right. Uh, does it feel like overall things are shifting here? The idea that these policies should be focused on what's in the best interest of consumers as opposed to, you know, what's in the best interest of industry, I think that would represent a, a real change. That's, there's been a lack of that in Canada, it feels like.
3: I think so, and uh you know we've interacted with the bureau on a couple of occasions uh when uh, when mergers and acquisitions uh, came along, and uh you could tell that their their scope was a little off they didn't think much about um, about the, the 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 consumer they 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 thought about the industry and jobs and the economy and so, but at the end of the day, food is a necessity of life. You have to really think about, you know, how people will be impacted, but it's not just, you, need, you can't adopt a national view uh, on this issue. You have to look at all markets, small markets, municipalities, towns, districts, everything.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll see what comes of all of this. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Shalabaugh, I appreciate your insight on uh, all this stuff. Thanks for joining us here. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All the best. Uh, that's Sylvain Charlebon, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, uh, one of the experts uh, who contributed to this report from the Competition Bureau. So they lay out some recommendations uh, that they hope can encourage more competition, strengthen the, the smaller independent grocers. So they want to see a grocery innovation strategy that could encourage new types of grocery business. That might include, you know, online Food uh, Retailers, for example, they want to see some policies to strengthen independent grocers' abilities to compete and to also encourage new competition by maybe convincing some international retailers to come to Canada, so maybe some of those grocery chains you know we see in the u s require harmonized price listings that would allow shoppers to more easily compare prices of similar items at various retailers on a per unit basis, so not forcing the prices to be the same, but forcing the uh, companies, to to display them the same way. So it would be easier to compare. And to also limit controls on the use of real estate to make it easier for new stores to open, something that uh, Professor Charlebois touched on. And, and that's a big hurdle for some smaller players. So the three big ones in grocery are Loblaws, Sobeys, and Metro. We don't really have any Metro stores out our way. They're more of a presence in the East, and Quebec in particular uh sobeys and safeway as well as iga and and fresco those brands we do have here and of course loblaws which is superstore also no frills uh real canadian superstore as mentioned shoppers drug marts uh that falls under the loblaws brand so th- those are the three big grocery players in canada now that doesn't include walmart and costco which are big players in grocery. And it also doesn't include some others that we have out west here, like Save-On Foods, which is owned by Patterson's, and Calgary Co-op, at least here in Calgary. Uh, So there are those two other big players, at least here, uh, that add to some of that competition. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
3: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.